1: Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. And technically, there was a Red Wings game last night. It was on the schedule. There was a final score. I was even there. But I can't tell you anything that happened because I'm not sure anything did.
2: Yeah, I mean, did you at least see the team in, in red and white? Were they there? Because I was having a little bit of difficulty actually spotting you know, anything of semblance in the offensive zone for them.
1: Yeah. I think they actually, they, they were there, but they just mostly were on the right side of the ice for most of the game.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough because I, I honestly, it was almost like there was this uh, maybe like blurred pane of glass that as soon as you got to the left side of the TV screen, you didn't see anything. But then very soon after you saw the puck going back in the other direction, uh, back towards Red Wings net. And I felt like that was basically the gist of the hockey game.
1: I think that's a fair summation. I mean, this was uh, through two periods. Truly the only thing I could, there are two things I could tell you that I remember. One was Philip Zadina seeming to get hurt in the corner on a reverse hit that he then came back out for a few minutes later. And so it amounted to nothing of consequence and a disallowed Philip Forsberg goal on a challenge that I thought had no chance of winning that won. And those were the only two things that I could tell you confidently happened in that game. Uh in the third period, more happened, but it was all by the National Predators. And uh I I you know, this is not like one of the Red Wings' worst games of the year in terms of margin or in terms of you know, even I thought their defensive play was relatively okay, but this was one of the worst ones to watch, and it, it was you know, it might have been one of their worst, uh certainly offensive performances. I mean, it, it, that's kind of Captain Obvious with, with no goals, but very, very few chances even the whole game.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, you know, it's funny that you say that it didn't seem like their worst game of the season. I mean, statistically, it was their worst game of the season. Uh, if you go by kind of five-on-five five expected goals, four percentage, they, they clocked in at a, at a really, really strong 26.7% for The game, which actually is their worst game of the season, worse than any of the Carolina by percent. games. Yeah, yeah, by just by percentage. So, yeah. Um, and, and a large part of that again has to do with the fact that they recorded less than one expected goals at five on five. I mean, you're just you're not going to win hockey games doing that. That's the fourth time this season they've had a game where they've had less than one expected goal at five on five. Um, and their five on five defense wasn't as sharp as it usually was, given north, given up north of two and a half. Uh, expected goals at five on five where they usually are are kind of closer to about one point seven one point eight for a forty five minute you know kind of time frame uh in a game so i mean you put the two together and statistically from a percentage standpoint that is the worst game of the season and it certainly felt like it. I mean, at, at times, I think I, I tweeted out that it felt like a game of Red Rover where, you know, Detroit would throw the puck into Nashville's end and then Nashville would just throw it right back into Detroit's end and literally nothing happened. It was probably one of the worst hockey games I think I've ever watched.
1: Well, the reason that I keep it out of that bottom tier is because I three days ago watched them get smacked seven to two by Panthers. And that's a game in which they did just about nothing offensively uh but also were you know just atrocious all over the ice at every you know at least i thought they were competent defensively in this game even if i i agree with you it was uh you know one of their it was still a down game defensively in terms of what they gave up but you know it, i i still think it's a cut above like that last florida game there was that chicago game uh, the first time they played chicago this season uh and then i think you can argue that the tampa game even though that was really a, a story of 5 minutes early in the game uh I thought that game was equally boring, but, uh, offensively, I think this was, might've been their worst offensive performance. I'll definitely give you that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, regardless, I think we can, we can get into the semantics of how, just how bad this one yeah, was. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, this had to be one of the uh, the five worst games the wings yes, have played this season. I and, agree. and I think, you know, you have to, if you're, if you're taking a 10,000 foot view here, um, you have to get a little nervous because I think, If you looked at this team two weeks ago, they had strung together a lot of good games. They were looking good at five on five. They just weren't necessarily getting the the wins that they uh, were kind of deserving almost. Now you kind of are looking at the last handful of performances. I mean, you have the the game where they get spanked by Florida. You have this game here against Nashville. um, And you're starting to build up a series of bad performances And so I think if you're the Red Wings, you very quickly need to slam the brakes on this because you're now going from losing close games that you probably should have won to losing close games that you have no business being in. And I think that's the that's the dangerous part uh, for the Wings, especially as they're looking forward to the rest of the season where they've still got 18 games against Tampa, Carolina and Dallas. So they, they have to figure this out really, really quickly.
1: You're dead on. I mean, between their struggles so far against Chicago um, and now, you know, th- this last game against Nashville, Nashville is a team that I thought they outplayed thoroughly through their first meeting this season, both games. They ended up splitting the series. Uh, last night, Nashville completely took them out of the game. Like they had no shot, uh, even though they only lose by two goals. I mean, As soon as Nashville scored, you were on dagger watch. Like the next Nashville goal was going to end the game. That was how little of a chance the Red Wings had of scoring. You know, really once, but but twice ultimately at that point. Like it was just uh, completely smothered by the Predators. And the Predators are one of the six or seven worst teams in the NHL this year. Uh, and so, you know, the Blackhawks were the team I thought was going to rival Detroit for the bottom of the central. turns out nobody's going to, but, but now the predators are going to finish seventh. I, I have no doubt about that. And for the predators to be able to completely take the red wings out last night, uh, would, would give me, you know, uh, a scare if I'm the red wings, knowing as you alluded to how much tougher the schedule is going to get because Carolina can do the exact same thing Nashville just did. And they're going to score four times on you.
2: Yeah. I mean, Carolina's arguably one of the most terrifying offensive teams in the league. I think they lead the league where they're second in the league in goals per game. They have the most uh, impressive power play in the league. I mean, this is a, a team where if you play like this against Carolina, Tampa, and uh, Dallas, you are going to continue to get blown out. Um, and, and, you know, I like to use penalties drawn as, as almost a proxy for kind of how much you were actually able to skate with the puck and maybe play that since, you know, the wings, got one power play in that game and you can't really argue that there were any missed calls that really warranted them getting any more opportunities i mean they were plain and simple just completely taken out of the game had no ability to to skate with the puck and it's not like nashville you know like you said max it's not like nashville is a robust defensive team i mean this is a goalie pecorine who on the wings beat the Predators, you know, yes. a couple of weeks ago, it was all because Pecorino couldn't stop a beach ball. Like some of the goals that he was letting in were, were pretty soft goals. So you just had to put pucks on him and the wings could not even do that. So I think it's not necessarily time to sound the alarm bell and that the wings are going backwards, backwards, backwards towards last season, but you have to be very, very concerned with their last string of five or six games Uh, relative to where they were in kind of the tenor games before, uh, because now you're starting to lose games that you have no business being in.
1: Yeah, lose games that you have business being in, you mean?
2: No, no, no. I mean, at the beginning, they they were losing games that they should have won. They should have been able to win those games. They really controlled play. But I think if you're looking at the last five or so, they shouldn't have won those games. They were not competitive in those games and they lost those games. I'm saying you're regressing back to where they're not actually as competitive in these hockey games anymore.
1: Oh, I I thought you were like, I I was, I thought you were referring to like, you know, they're, they're, they're getting, they're they're losing the teams that they should be able to in theory compete with. And they're not, they're not at that level, but I
2: I think that's fair too. I mean, you know, Nashville, Florida, Chicago, these are all I mean, those are your last seven games. You should be able to, to, to beat those teams. I mean, Florida, really you've played Florida, Nashville, Chicago in your last nine games, I think. And and you're coming away, you know, relatively empty handed from that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the way, the way I saw this playing out for the Red Wings, just to give everybody kind of a picture of of how I arrive at, like, you know, how I forecast the season. Right. So you get eight teams against eight games against seven different teams. And I pretty much was figuring on the whole, you can go close to 500 against Florida, Chicago, Nashville Columbus you can probably go two or three wins against Dallas uh, even though Dallas is a cup team they're, they're just not that good of a, a regular season team like they're really built for the, for the playoff style and you, you catch a team like that in the regular season uh, and, and sometimes you can pick up some wins it's, it's why Dallas was it kind of came out of nowhere a little bit last season um, in their run to the cup and then any win that you get against Carolina or Tampa you just you know say your prayers you know, and and appreciate it because you you're going to be overmatched every single time. I would not expect the Red Wings to win a single game against those teams. Um, obviously, they did. They, they've already beaten Carolina once, but uh, so that's kind of how I approach this season. And you look at where it's fallen apart is they have yet to beat Chicago. I think they've held serve against Florida. They've only won two out of six against them, uh, but they've been in every game except for one against them. And so that's a team that I think they've played better than any other team. Uh, and Nashville was trending that same way until last night's game, which I think is a big red flag. I mean, they'll play him again tomorrow. They've been better in the second games of, of every single series they've played this season, except for uh, the Florida second Florida series. They actually won the opener, but even beyond wins and losses, I think they've been better on the second game of every series. Uh, if they're not better against Nashville tomorrow, this thing, is, you're, I mean, they are They just already are They're in, in a, you know, race to the bottom here with Ottawa.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think about two weeks ago after Detroit beat Florida 4-1 and played kind of one of their best games of the season, I tweeted out that I said Detroit had a shot at going 6-3-2 to finish out the month of February, because at that time they were playing well. They were being, they were very competitive in all their games for the most part. Uh, They really just weren't getting the bounces necessary. And then if you looked at their schedule, kind of the remainder of February, you had four games against Chicago, you had four games against Nashville, and you had three games against Florida. Uh, And and so you had a real opportunity if you're Detroit to come away with some points, but instead you lose to Florida, you lose to Nashville, you pick up one win, um, uh, you know, against Nashville on the second game there, you pick up one win, second game of Florida, but now you've got three games left and you've only won two of these hockey games and you were only able to squeak a point out of one of the other ones you know, instead of being able to go six, three, and two, now you're just trying to avoid, uh, you know, going two, eight, and one, uh, making sure that you at least are finding a way to get something out of these. So uh, it's really important that Detroit figures this out, because if you look at their March schedule, it's Columbus, Carolina, Tampa, Tampa, Carolina, Carolina, Dallas, Dallas, Nashville, Nashville, Nashville Columbus, Columbus, Florida. Like there's a real good chance. Luck. That, like, Good luck. This was, I mean, and we talked about this last year. That was what Detroit's March look like in the previous season they actually got bailed out by the season getting stopped. This is the same murderers row. I mean, you have maybe two winnable games that you should pick up against Nashville, but those are even in Nashville. You're not even playing those at home. Otherwise, I mean, it's it's all playoff teams, so they they really have to sort something out here. And I think the answer has got to come from their special teams.
1: It does. I mean, the, the, special teams, again, like, you know, as bad as I think they were offensively at five on five last night. And, and your point about the overall percentage says that they, they weren't good in any phase of the game. And that includes five on five, but it again, give up two power play goals. Don't get any final scores. Two Oh, you know, at some point, one plus one just equals two there.
2: Yeah. And I mean, now the wings are what? zero for 37 uh, on the power play going back to Bertuzzi's goal in January against Dallas uh, this is the longest streak in franchise history as much as, as as far back as I could find. And, you know, they're they're only 22 away from the record here. So, uh, I mean, something's got to give because you're you can't be a team that can't score at five on five and have the 31st power play and the 29th penalty kill. You're just you're you're plain and simple going to start getting blown out of games.
1: I want to know. And I, I know you can't speak for the fan base here, but I want to know if people actually want the streak to end or if there's like a secret part of them that wants it wants this power playlist streak or this drought to uh, mm-hmm. to continue just because it, it seems to have become emblematic of so much about the team and their inability to score. And you've got that, that graph that you've been keeping track of now that uh, was making the rounds on Twitter today of their uh, five on five goals per 60 versus five on five uh, goals per 60 on the power play or sorry, not five, 5 their goals per 60 on the power play. Uh, and I almost wonder, is there something cathartic about that streak and that, that just like, it seems to be the thing that really is what gets through to other, whether it's other fans or whether it's national media members or whatever, like I've seen a lot of them pick up on it and Red Wings fans are like, yes, do you see like, like, this is what it is. Like, I almost wonder if people want it to continue just because. It's the only way people seem to understand what they're going through.
2: I mean, I'll speak for myself in that sense. That's how I process like how bad the Red Wings are. I literally have to be that person standing there going, look, look at how bad this is. Like, this is as bad as it it can be. And I'm going to shove this number in front of your face so you understand that like this is miserable. This is terrible. And I think, you know, because of that and because that's the way I've kind of interacted on social media for years I think the the people that follow me and have followed me for years are going to tell you it's the same way uh, that they process it the same way. Like, you know, I tweeted out the graph a, a few days ago and then someone said, you know, this is, this is like evil or this is something along those lines. And I said, no, what would really be sick would be if I included the league medians. And immediately I get five <laughs> tweets back saying, I bet you, you won't. And so it's like, okay, people, I, I really think people want to see it. I mean, this is, this is emblematic. It's defining. And, in the sickest sense possible, you know, people want to see it so they can process and really understand, uh, and, and maybe just help get through watching just another terrible season of hockey.
1: Yeah. Especially, you know, when it comes to like, you know, like last year's draft lottery, I think when, uh, when the Red Wings fell to fourth, there was so much kind of sniping from whether it was, you know, media or other fans and, uh, about, you know, Oh, well, that's what you get for, for tanking or whatever. And the, the, the roar of responses, at least I saw to whenever that take popped popped up was like, how is this tank? Like, did you watch this team play? This was not tanking. This was just, you know, a, an atrocity. <laughs> basically,
2: yeah. I mean, I remember them going <laughs> after Wyszynski when he tweeted that this is what happens when you tank and literally the entire fan base piled on him because they're saying, did you, did you watch this team? There's no, they, did, they didn't, they weren't intentionally trying to do that.
1: Yeah. If you want to see tanking, give them a power play for 60 minutes and see how, how many goals they
2: score. I mean, that's where we're at right now. We're at it. We're in a place where right now at five on five, the Red Wings goals for per 60 is higher than their five on four goals for per 60. I mean, this is mind blowing stuff. We are 21 games into the season and you are scoring more at five on five than you are when you have a man advantage that that is just completely blowing my mind uh, right now i mean i'm I'll, I'll be curious i can't imagine that the the longest record in the nhl is is much longer than this so the wings have to be creeping up on it i'm going to try and figure out if i can get the data to analyze it but i i suspect we're we're approaching kind of nhl record breaking territory with kind of how deep we are into the season and how bad this power play still looks
1: Unfortunately, uh, the next power play goal is going to undo that stat for you. Oh, it unless totally it does way. really take like 30 more power
2: plays. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. If we really do get to the record and the wings get to 0 for 60 on this streak, which would be the new NHL record. Uh, and again, this has been tracked back to 1977, 1978, actually the 70 or the uh, 97, 98 Toronto Maple Leafs have the record where, you know, funnily enough uh, we think the Red Wings power play is bad. In the first three months of their season, they had an 0 for 43 streak and then an 0 for 59 streak after. So that, that was a team that really couldn't score power play goals. What team is that? That's a 97 98 Toronto Maple Leafs.
1: So, oh, I thought you said it was Montreal. I was going to say Montreal's never had a good power play. No, so.
2: no, no, no. And 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 Claude <laughs> Julien will pay for that uh, as well. But oh, no, I was that, making
1: a joke about how, how good Montreal's power play <laughs> used to be, the one that they literally changed the rules for.
2: You know, but uh yeah, 97-98 Toronto Maple Leafs is is where we're going here. So if the wings can get there, I mean, shoot, it might take some time for them to be able to climb back uh, above with their five on four scoring rate,
1: it's kind of how I how I uh, felt about last season. It was almost like uh, you know people they obviously they want they wanted something to be happy about, but if if you can't actually be happy, there's almost something to be said for being the most miserable. <laughs>
2: I mean, that's what it is, is the competition to who can be the most miserable and how impressively bad can my hockey team be? Like, you know, I used to get in an argument. with It was a joke argument with uh, Kevin, who is a a Sabres fan. And we would legitimately argue who was worse, the 1920 Red Wings or the 1415 Sabres, because it was a it was a competition. And it was such a, a heated discussion that Micah McCurdy had to simulate a series, a seven game series with his model to, to settle this. And yes, the 1920 Red Wings lost the series. So, you know, putting that all in, you know, bringing that all back, I mean, it really is somewhat of a way to process this is just seeing how bad they can really be. Absolutely. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7
1: US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone?
1: All right. Well, so that'll wrap, uh, that kind of segment here, but I want to spend the bulk of today's episode on some individual player dives. I mean, we're not quite at mid season. It's not the neat and tidy time of the year to be doing this, but, uh, it just felt like kind of a good check-in time for, for how different, uh, players are doing, especially I think kind of one of the narratives right now has been about Dylan Larkin and, and how he's been, um, you know, certainly we've had a lot of conversations about Troy Stetcher but I was going through Dom Lefzigen's, uh GSVA uh, update today, which which is new, and I certainly uh, would encourage everybody to go check that out on the Athletic. Um, I think Dom does great work, and I think on the value stats, I'm always really interested to see how his model um, rates different guys. And so I think uh, – John Merrill was the one who came in up top among Red Wings defensemen. And in some ways that's not stunning. He's been very good. He's, he's graded out very well uh, by goals above replacement too. Um, but what shocked me was kind of the company that he's keeping in, in Dom's model. I mean, the names that, that he is right above, like the four names after John Merrill, he's who has a 0.96, uh, you know, game score value added so far this year are, uh, Ivan Provorov, Rasmus Ristalainen, Colton Perico, and Seth Jones. And if you want one more, it's Justin Hall. And if you want another one after that, it's Mackenzie Wegar. And those are guys who have all been getting a ton of hype this year. Even Ristalainen, who normally uh, gets hammered by the analytic crowd uh, because he is having maybe his best season as a pro. Uh, what is behind that? I mean, for John Merrill to be up with some of those names who are getting all kinds of love, uh, you know, h- how's he doing this?
2: I mean, uh, I think when you go and you're trying to tease out like what's really driving Merrill's response here, if you look across all the different models um, and analysis, the the number one thing that jumps out to you is when John Merrill's on the ice, shots are not going on the Red Wing net and specifically quality shots are not going. And that's been a consistent feature uh, of Merrill for... The duration, really the entirety of his career, if you go back, um, one of the nice uh, summary ways you can see this is if you go to HockeyViz, which is Micah McCurdy's uh, website, you pull up the isolated summaries of, of John Merrill and look at kind of how he's looked over the course of his career. He's consistently a guy that when he's on the ice, other teams generate, you know, lower quality chances relative to the league average. I think that's a big thing here. I think the other key is remember that Merrill missed time when a lot of the other wings kind of key guys uh, or secondary scoring guys also missed time. My suspicion is when those guys were out, a lot of the guys who were left in the lineup, the Larkin, the Manthas, uh, and and so on and so forth, they actually took a big hit with their numbers because the wings were just not playing as well. And so, Mm. you know, from a numbers perspective, they looked worse, but when Merrill comes back, he comes back at the same time as kind of everybody else on that list. Zadina, Fabry, uh, you know, Ernie, Gagne, they all come back right around the same time. And all of a sudden the wings are able to be a little bit more competitive. So I think part of that is over a small sample size. Uh, I think missing those games is also a, a key kind of reason for why Merrill looks good. Cause he's only been in the lineup really with a full roster.
1: So he just turned 29, uh, you know, obviously, I don't expect him to be, you know, talked about in the tier of some of the names I just mentioned your Provorov, your Pareko, your Seth Jones, whatnot. But he's 29 years old, he's a pending unrestricted free agent. Do you re sign John Merrill? And what kind of term are you looking at here? I mean, he's not going to break the bank. This is a guy who's playing for, I think, less than a million dollars right now. If you can get him for two or three years at 2.5 million, I, you know, with, with I mean, it, for him, Really small sample. I think he's only played 12, 13 games. I don't want to get out of, ahead of our skis here. Uh, but, you know, is this a guy who's a legitimate kind of short midterm extension
0: candidate?
2: Yeah, I think he's a guy that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially when you look at the Red Wings, kind of the left side of their defense. We we talk so much about how their their right side is really solidified for the future, uh, you know, with Philip Aronick, Moritz Satter, obviously coming over next, uh, next season, likely will be in the NHL lineup right from the get-go. Uh, The left side is less certain. You know, I think Danny DeKaiser was a guy who a couple years ago, a lot of people expected him to be there. Now, you know, he still hasn't been able to be healthy from his back injury. Uh, So I think that's a huge question mark. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to to re-sign a guy like Merrill if he's willing to stick around for another two years. Uh, You you sign him, you, uh, you know, can keep it cheap. You can probably do a two-year, $2 million deal for a guy like him. Uh, being a $1 million average annual value. And I think he takes that deal um, and is able to stick around the area and he's able to be that good defensive defenseman that honestly, you know, is giving you what you kind of hoped Danny DeKaiser was going to give you uh, yeah. being that kind of good defensive defenseman support. And honestly, he would be a great launching partner for a guy like Moritz Sider to be able yep. to play on the right side for. I mean, uh, he's he's going to be that stability, that rock, the guy who's going to Ah, uh, make good outlet passes, and I think he would be a great partner for cider, so I think he's a guy I'd certainly like to see back if he if you're able to do that,
1: yeah, a merrill cider pair would would accomplish two things: number one, you know in 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 a perfect situation, it is a excellent shutdown pair if cider trans cider's defensive game translates immediately, then you have already one of your best chance suppressors and a guy who you expect to someday be one of your best chance suppressors out there at the same time. But number two, and I would argue more importantly for a guy who's going to be coming over at 20 years old, it's going to allow more insider to keep pushing the bounds of what he can do in his offensive game. He's a guy that likes to join the rush. He's a guy that, you know, at the time of his draft, maybe we didn't realize could be as good as he was um, offensively and jumping into the play, largely because he hadn't been asked or, or necessarily allowed to do it playing as such a young guy in a pro league. Well, if I'm the Red Wings, I want more at Sider embracing those instincts a little bit early in his career. Um, now that would run a little bit counter to what they've how they've handled young defensemen in the last three, four years. We got to be honest about that. Um, but in a best case scenario, you you pair him with John Merrill, and it at least gives him the chance to to push the bounds a little bit and try and um, just see what what else can come. He's already raised my opinion of his offensive game significantly since he was drafted. This is the kind of defense partner, I believe, who would allow him to just see just how high can I take this?
2: Yeah, and I mean when we're talking about Moritz Sider, I think we're legitimately talking about the Red Wings' best defensive prospect that they've had since arguably Yuri Fisher back in two thousand and two. I mean, you know, Nick Cronwall, yes, he was a great defenseman, uh, uh, outstanding, but as a prospect, wasn't necessarily viewed in the same kind of frame as as Moritz Sider is right now. Whereas Yuri Fisher, I think. Kind of coming up was a, a really good guy. Was able to crack the Wings lineup at 19, and again doing it on a very good Red Wings team. But uh, I, I think if you're looking for the parallel, I mean, you got to throw it all the way back to Nick Lidstrom. And when Lidstrom broke into the league uh, with the Red Wings in his rookie season, they paired him with Brad McCrimmon, and Brad McCrimmon was the was the beast. He was the steady shutdown defenseman. He allowed Lidstrom to be able to jump up uh, on the rush, play to his instincts because he knew he always had support from McCrimmon behind him. And I think you're you're looking for a similar concept with Sider. Now, Sider certainly doesn't have the offensive instincts of the Nick Glidstrom. He certainly doesn't have that kind of game, flash, flare, offensive drive. But you want him to be able to play instinctively and with those instincts as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to pare it down and play a safe hockey game and maybe lose some of what makes him special because he is worried about chasing, uh, you know, the puck or making sure he's defensively responsible. I think Merrill is going to be a great guy, similar to what McCrimmon was for, uh, for Lidstrom. And even when Fisher came up and started to stick around a little bit more, the wings paired him with Chris Chelios, heck of a veteran guy. And Chelios by that points in his forties, uh, doesn't necessarily have the same jump to his game. And so, you know, Chelios was able to be that defensive safeguard for Yuri Fisher. So I think you can do a similar thing with Sider here in Merrill.
1: You went through and checked uh, and, and counted these up, and so by GSVA, Merrill right now sixty uh, third, and based on uh, standings points above replacement per sixty, which is the kind of the evolving hockey version of of this kind of warlike stat, sixty uh, fifth in the league that puts him as a top end second pair defenseman or a fringe bottom uh, first pair defenseman. We attribute quite a bit of that, I imagine, to the sample, but. No matter what, like if if he's even if he takes a little bit of a step back there, you're looking at what what appears to be a a steady second pair D here.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly what you can can bank on with with Merrill is he's that steady second pairing guy. And so that's why he makes perfect sense to be a guy to pair with uh... With more at cider
1: moving into the guy who you have been uh, one of the most visible uh, proponents for this year. That's Troy Stetcher. He's out of the lineup right now, um, but Stetcher comes in not that far behind Merrill here. Uh, I forget what his exact number is. He's
2: eighty-eight uh, in Dom's model.
1: Okay. eight. Yeah. And that, you know, again uh, that would be 0. 0.62. So the company he's keeping there, he's around uh, he's, he's between uh, Hampus Lindholm, Evan Bouchard are the two right above him. Jordan Esterly, Noah Dobson, Philip Myers are the three right behind him. Again, solid company there. And so, uh, 88th by Dom's model, but as you point out, uh, in by standings points of a replacement per sixty, 36th in the league uh, among players who have played at least 100 minutes. Um, again, that's actually a middle of the road first pair kind of impact guy. Um, they're not playing him like that. They're not giving him those minutes. And so, I think you can maybe dock that a little bit, but nonetheless. Um, again, this is looking like a, a guy who can have solid second pair impact.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's another second pairing guy that you're looking and saying, okay, if I can keep Stetcher, um, you know, keep him as a guy that can play that uh, that kind of offensive minded skating the puck up game, uh, he's another great guy that you can be able to slot in on your second pair and, and, and do a lot of work with. That's. And that's really what the, the wings are missing right now is they've got a couple guys who I think slot in as good second pairing defensemen, but what you're really missing is the elite guy. And so you're hoping that, you know, Merrill can serve as the launch pad for a more Cider and potentially, you know, who you take in the 2021 draft or even 2022 draft could be another guy that can slot in uh, on your left side of your defense. But in the meantime, I think Merrill and Setter are two guys who have come in, uh, really allowed and I think they're kind of the key reasons why Detroit's five-on-five defense has really improved is both of, is really the play of both of these guys, um, and so I think they're they're both guys you want to be looking at re-signing. Uh, Come spe- specifically, Meryl Stetcher's is obviously under contract for next season as well, but um, potentially keeping them around a, a little bit longer.
1: You posted not too long ago a text that you sent me on the first day of training camp saying Troy Stetcher was the the best defenseman on this team. But I was actually thinking about it, and even farther back, maybe in December or even November, uh, I was putting together one of my expansion draft uh, previews, and you said uh, you, you were the first person to really prod me that Stetcher should be a keep. Uh, and, I, and you convinced me of it then, and I've never been more certain of it now. Troy Stetcher needs to be protected in this expansion draft. Even though it's only one year on his contract, this is a guy who's, what is he, 26 or has he turned 27?
2: Yeah, he's 26.
1: 26 years old. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, even though he's not the biggest, I'm not necessarily sure how his game is going to age. It's so based on compete um, and heart and soul, at least three, four more years of uh, of, of good game. I think he has to offer. Uh, this is a guy who I think you protect. And this is a guy who I think you resign kind of a perfect along with Merrill uh, bridge, the gap guy. And I think Stetcher is young enough that he can even give you a couple good years when this team's good again.
2: Yeah. I, I think you could be looking at keeping him around until he's probably 31, 32, 33, even, I mean, the, the way he plays his game, he doesn't take a ton of big hits. I think that's going to be his biggest worry is, you know, making sure he can keep himself clean uh, but otherwise the way he skates, the way he moves the puck, the way he challenges the rush, um, all, all qualities you want to have in a defenseman that's, uh, even on a cup contending team. I think that's why you saw so much outrage, um, in Vancouver over the summer when they elected not to qualify him and, and really just let him walk. It was kind of a bizarre decision at that time. And as soon as Detroit was able to jump on him for a relatively cheap contract here, uh, you know, I think you saw a lot of people in Vancouver talking about it. You know, when I dug into him, when the wings signed him, I saw a lot of things that I liked and it's sort of panned out nicely thus far. Um, And I think he's a guy that'll be able to continue doing that in a bigger role.
1: I've been impressed. Uh, Kudos to you for calling it early before he even stepped on the ice in Detroit. Um, But yeah, I've been very impressed by Stetcher. and, And certainly I would say that he and Merrill, you know, I think Bobby Ryan was the free agency move that everyone got most fired up about. And I think Bobby Ryan's been as advertised, you know, he's tied for the team leading goals. Uh, he's, he's done wonders, I think, uh, in just his temperament and his mood um, for, for what that has brought to the team. But these two defensemen, Merrill and Stetcher, have been up there with Eiserman's very best moves so far. And they're the kind of moves that we've talked about on the show in the past. This is how good GMs do it. Even the best GMs aren't hitting five, six home runs uh, in their tenure in terms of player acquisition. But you take these bona fide doubles that you get, finding these players who other teams have you know, decided to let walk or they haven't quite seen enough in them, and you pick those guys up and you add them to your core, man, there's a lot of hay to be made as a GM. Uh, that's a positive expression, right? Hay to be made?
2: Uh, sure. I'll go with that. I don't know if I'm wrong.
1: I mean it positively. So how about this? There's a lot of value to be gained that way. We'll just say it explicitly and ditch the metaphor entirely uh, in, in this kind of player pickup mold.
2: Yeah. And I mean, you see teams do this, uh, really contending teams do this regularly. You know, I, again, I will, I have to always throw this back to Carolina because, that's the team that I think you should model things after. I mean, Carolina being able to pick up a guy like Jake Gardner and play him on their third pairing uh, or second pairing. Carolina a couple years ago before that, picking up Calvin DeHaan and having him be able to play on that second and third pairing, that's what a guy like Troy Stetcher does for you. And now all of a sudden when those guys are on your second and third pairing, that's a really mobile and difficult to play against defensive group. And now you look at a team like Carolina and – yeah, they have the lockdown guys up top. They've got Jacob Slavin and Dougie Hamilton, but behind them, they have so many guys that are mobile, good defensively. I mean, John Merrill's almost a Brett Pesci light. He's not in Pesci's kind of world in terms of defensive impact, but he's a, a light version of that. Uh, and, you know, Troy Stetcher is a guy that can skate the puck up and contribute offensively like a Jake Gardner and like a Calvin DeHaan. And so that's what you want to be able to add and keep and retain. Um, but what Carolina's also done a good job is, knowing the right time to move on from those guys uh, and be able to bring new ones in. Yeah.
1: All right. Then the other defenseman I wanted to talk about is Philip Peronic. He's a guy who I think has a very split uh, perception right now around the Red Wings uh, community. I mean, it's uh, not within the team, but around, you know, Red Wings followers. Um, You know, I personally am of the opinion that Philip Peronic is a good player who is just not quite cut out for this kind of workload. He's playing a true number one workload right now, 24 to 25 minutes a night. I think it's costing him a little bit in terms of quality of play. And, and that's something that you and I have both thought, I think dating back to last season and the minutes have only gone up. Uh, he's getting more experienced. Uh, but I I think what you're still seeing is a, a good defender who has good offensive instincts uh, and is just really being uh, – Thrown out there so often that it's it's kind of hard to get his best on every single shift, but I still think you're seeing high level defense. I think you're seeing uh, you know good smarts. He's got a good shot that I I wish he would stop taking from the very top middle of the blue line uh, quite so often. But I still see a guy who's going to be uh, a solid to maybe even upper end second pair D someday. Um, you know, by GSVA, he's not that right now. I think he's 143rd amongst D, is what you had uh, counted out. Uh, that obviously would put him as a good third pair guy. Um, you know, right now by by GSVA, M- my contention would be part of that is being driven by his workload. Obviously, by standing points above replacement per sixty, 101st that would put him as kind of a second pair territory. Nine assists puts him among the higher scoring defensemen in the league. Although I know we've gone back and forth as to how to necessarily weight that. And certainly in the same way I'm arguing that um, some of his underlying numbers are hampered by the workload, the scoring would would similarly be inflated by the workload. So that has to go both ways too. So um, I'll let you add the floor on Philip Hironik now. I still think this is a guy who projects to be a second pair player on a contender, and he's young enough that I think he will be on Detroit's second pair when the Red Wings are a contender. Uh, but I will turn the floor over to you for what you've thought of Philip Hironik so far.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was really optimistic about him in his rookie season because he came in and he looked really solid defensively. He didn't look like an absolute disaster on uh, on offense. And and he had the heck of a shot and he had the pedigree of being a great scorer in juniors. And so, you know, all, all of those things there uh, kind of pointed towards a guy who was potentially a, a, a hidden gem um, for the Red Wings to be able to pick up with a later round pick. But really in the two seasons since then, you know, it's it's almost like he's been thrown into the fire, uh, so to speak. And for whatever reason, even though he is somewhat floundering, he has not really had his workload lightened. I mean, last year the guy was averaging twenty-three fifty-four uh per game in terms of ice time. And this season he's averaging twenty-three fifty-seven. It's been, you know, exactly the exact same. And that's the thing that's just kind of blowing my mind is like, you know, what why are we not trying to optimize what Philip Aronic can do here? And why are we not, you know, t- making an effort to lighten that workload, especially when you've got guys like Stetcher and Merrill behind him who, you know, you and I have said are excelling in their roles right now. They they should merit or warrant kind of a larger opportunity to see if you can take some of the burden off of Philip Aronik. But it's sort of getting to the point where the more I'm watching him, the more I see Rasmus Ristolainen. And I know you made this kind of crack, uh, I think, half-heartedly to me a few weeks ago, but the more I look at it and the way he's deployed, the way he's perceived, the disconnect between coaching and his numbers, it's it's following a Rasmus Ristolainen style of impact. Um, Doesn't really push the needle offensively, doesn't put, you know, tends to be on the ice for a lot against defensively, but scores a lot of points and plays a lot of minutes. And it it's fitting that kind of archetype for me. And I think, you know, it's still early. He still doesn't have a strong team around him. And, you know, maybe the the kind of Ristolainen being able to turn his game around a little bit this season may be a sign of encouragement, you know, given that this is kind of Ristolainen's like eighth season in the league. Uh, but I, I am certainly nervous about what Philip Paronic is going to be uh, at least moving forward. My thing is I,
1: I don't see a weak, a real weakness to his game. He doesn't have flashy puck skills and he's not blazing fast. But I don't really have any concerns about his ability to get to the puck when he needs to. I, I love his shot. I love his compete. Uh, I think he's a very smart player and I do think he defends well. He's saved about four goals already, like literally saved. Uh, in terms of he has stopped them with his body that would have been no doubt goals. Uh, and those obviously aren't the kind of plays that as a defenseman you want to be happening when you're on the ice. And so you have to dig him for that. But I also think it it does speak to his compete that he will give his body to stop a goal. And by and large, I do think that he suppresses chances. You know, I, I know empirically that doesn't seem to be happening to a high level. Um, but I actually think the bigger problem with this game this year has been in the offensive end. Like I think defensively I've been impressed by it. And I just, I just believe in the tools enough to think that when the Red Wings are playing a style that's more conducive to offense, his offense will come back to what we saw early in his career. And as a prospect, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. I believe in the tools. I think the production, even in spite of, um, kind of the underlying offense and, and, uh, and the the style of offense this year has actually still been solid. Like for a defenseman being around a half point per game forever uh, in in his NHL career is extremely impressive, especially this early. So I I believe in the tools. I believe in the track record. And I I just think that the better the Red Wings get, the, the more responsibly they can use him, the more it will come through.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think that's gotta be your hope. I mean, the wings were certainly putting a lot of eggs in the basket with Philip Aaronic um and and the hope is you know maybe as you you turn things around and things start to move in the right direction that that's what he becomes i think for me right now i'm seeing i'm not i guess my my disconnect here is i don't necessarily see the tools that are going to get him off this train track and he right now is is somewhat mirroring what the careers look like for guys like michael delzato and guys like rasmus ristolainen where you know, Zotto was a first-round pick. Zotto was a guy that a lot of people really build as being a great uh, skater, good puck mover, good offensive defenseman, and then ended up really being a sieve defensively. Um, not saying that Philip Ronick's a sieve defensively, but just never could really get it to where he was a guy that you could count on turn, turning the tables in your favor when he was on the ice. But, you know, for the better part of his career, all the way through age 25, the guy was basically getting – you know, fringe first line minutes. I mean, Philip Ronin's getting those first line minutes, Rasmus Ristolainen got those first line minutes. I have a hard time seeing how he gets himself off the tracks because like you said, Max, to me, nothing stands out. Like there's not one thing that I think he does significantly well. It's just, he's got an average game. And I think it's being hurt being in this system. Um, I think maybe if you're going to look for something he does well, he's got a heck of a slap shot. But like you said, he almost he's using the one tool that he's got a little too much, and I don't actually. I think he's want to an above-average
1: defender. I mean, it might come from. I mean, he, he's a guy who I think his best trait is 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 like his give-a-shit level, basically, for lack of a better term, uh, and that that helps on on defending. So but... he's the
2: Luke Lindening of defensemen. No, that's not what I said. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, that it. that's Luke Lindening's best quality as well, right? It's his it's his ability to give a shit. I, I like
1: on... his sense, though. I mean, I I I just think. I, I agree with you that he doesn't have an elite trait. I do agree with that. Like, but I don't think he has any below average trait. And I think most of his other traits, besides maybe puck skills and speed, are at least above average, like in my opinion, at least, like I think his shot's definitely above average. I think he thinks the game well. I think he defends well. De- defending well technically isn't a tool if we want to be technical. So maybe I should just shut up about that. But,
2: uh, <laughs> it's I tough. I mean, I'll say that because right, a lot of these things, we have no idea what they're thinking in their head. We have no idea what they're processing the game of hockey so fast really hard to pin down things like offensive awareness, IQ, um, unless it's, you know, abundantly noticeable, but you're right. And just in watching him over three years, I don't necessarily see a particular trait that stands out to me as this is an above average trait with Philip Aaronic. And it, you know, I think that's, that's my biggest concern is fine. He can put you up half a point per game, but if you're losing the five on five battle in terms of goal differential with him on the ice, uh, how valuable of a player can he really be? Um, Because right now I I would have him behind Marilyn Stetcher on my, you know, top Red Wings defenseman for the season. And again, moving forward, he's a guy that I don't feel as good about projecting. I
1: I think it's fair. I mean, I guess, you know, we can go round and round on this all day. I mean, the Red Wings aren't, uh, aren't a team who have many, if anyone who, who grade out real favorably in terms of, uh, what's happening at five on five right now. That's just kind of the nature of their team. I mean, we don't like plus minus as a stat, but I think it, it still is telling that they only have four plus players and and two of them aren't actually on the team. That's Hiroshi and Biega. Uh, and the other two are Robbie Fabry, who's a, a plus three, and Sam Gunn, a plus one. We don't like that as a stat, but it does just kind of tell you the story of of what the ride has been for the team overall, and so... Uh, but it's it's fair, and and I'm not going to argue that he's been their best defenseman this season. I just think he is their best uh, defenseman, like going forward. Like he's the one that I would be most dead set on protecting in the Seattle expansion draft. Although I think they should protect all three of those guys. Like that's where I'm at on on these three. Is actually you, you wait to sign Merrill until afterward, so you don't have to use a protection spot spot on him. But uh, I'm I'm at heronic and are must protects, and uh, whoever you want to use for the th- third spot have fun.
2: Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I, it'll all, that'll all sort itself out. I, I have yeah, no yeah, doubt no about doubt. him signing somebody, but I think this is just going to be a fascinating uh, piece for wings fans to think about, because I think what Philip Aaronic ultimately is, has a significant impact on how far away the red wings are.
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, there's no question about that. As I project the red wings of the future, I consider Hironic to be on their second pair. I mean, Moritz Sider is the number one um, defenseman on the right side. You're going to play him with someone. So let me, let me, let me illustrate for you two paths here of just what they could do in this draft. And then we, we're we going to get to the forwards and we're going to have to do them quicker because we've taken so long at the D here, but two paths in the 2021 draft, of what they could do if they take a left shot D, if you draft a Luke Hughes, who I just went and watched last weekend and who I have real concerns about uh, the defensive game, but, could be a dynamic, dynamic offensive defenseman, the likes of which the Red Wings flat out do not have. I don't know when the last time they had a guy who could do some of the things that he could do with his skating. Uh, he's dynamic, and, and so the defensive concerns that that you have might give you pause on exactly how high you take him. But he's the one of the youngest players in the draft too, and so I, you know, I can completely buy a real case to bet on Luke Hughes, and I might even make that case. Um, I haven't decided yet, but. If you draft Luke Hughes, no question, you have to play him with Cider. That's just what it is. You're not going to play him with Heronik, I don't think. Um, he goes with Cider, and that's your Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski pairing that you roll out and, and you just let him cook. Uh, if you draft Owen Power, then I think you play Owen Power with Philip Heronik and you play Cider with somebody else. And I, I think that is a – if, if Heronik is playing next to somebody like an Owen Power – and I do think he can play 22 minutes a night and and give you a lot of really positive stuff. Um, but if if he doesn't have that guy who I think can be the um the rock of the pair per se, because I think he can play in all situations, but I think you still want to have kind of a you know, right now it's John Merrill, and I think he's he's a good partner for him, but Owen Power would be like John Merrill on steroids. Uh and so I don't know, you get you know what I'm saying. Like I I think there is a world in which Heronic is a really credible you know, number three or four on a contender. But I also think there's a world where, you know, on a contender, you'd rather have him uh, as kind of that that clear four, uh, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I guess don't get me wrong here. What I think, I think he can play in your second pair, but he's going to be the Brad Stewart to your Nicholas Cronwall. You need someone to drag him up. Is what I was what I think is happening. I don't think he's going to drag a pair See, up. Th-
1: but that's where I disagree. I, I I don't think he needs to be dragged. I think he just needs the right compliment. I you guess. Know the, what I mean
2: by that, like, I mean, you mean by a right compliment, like an elite stylistically.
1: like Styl- <laughs> no, 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 stylistically, stylistic compliment. Like, I, like I think Luke Hughes could be an elite defenseman, but I wouldn't play him with Herona because I don't think they compliment each other. That's what I was getting at with that. But like power, I think he could really compliment.
2: I don't know. I mean, at some point I think you you start running through the number of excuses you gotta make for the guy to like drag I don't know, that's an excuse. I mean what's the excuse there? An elite defenseman or a good defenseman is gonna be able to play defense regardless of who he's playing with, right? No,
1: he can play defense. I'm saying if you you, you've been talking the whole time about maximizing him.
2: Yeah, I mean if you're gonna maximize him, put a better player next to him, is what I'm saying. But I'm
1: not what I'm (laughs) saying is I'm not so sure that Luke Hughes isn't a better player than Owen Power but Owen power would be a better fit for Philip Peronic is what I'm like. That's kind of what I'm getting at here is, is how you, how you view Philip Peronic in terms of role. I think he could play this kind of role with an Owen power type player next to him. I don't think he could play this kind of role with a Luke Hughes type next to him. And Luke Hughes might be the better player. So that's not playing well next to elite guys. That's a, if you're going to play him, you got to play him next to one of these, uh, you know, big, shut down suppressor types who still has offensive instinct and Owen Power does. I've seen him make a hell of a seam pass. That'll get the most out of Philip Ronick's shot in the O zone. But in the D zone, uh it's it's the right mix so that you know Heronic can be good in transition. He can be good at uh you know killing a play along the wall, but he's not having to to really bear the majority of the D load. Do you see what I'm saying there?
2: I mean I can buy it, but the the cynic in me is going to say, well both Owen Power and Luke Hughes are better than Philip Peronick. Then, of course and, and, they are, but right.
1: that's
2: not... But, <laughs> so that's but, where but, I'm going to go, right? Either he's going to look fine next to either of them simply because I think at this point right now where I project him, he needs a guy who is better than him on his pairing if you're going to play him on the second pair. I mean,
1: he. do you think John Merrill is better than him?
2: No, I mean, I don't think John Merrill is better than him by enough to drag him up. I think, I think John Merrill he, John, is roughly I mean, on the same tier as Philip Peronic, has had slightly better results but he's not good he, enough to drag them up
1: together right now are a credible second pair. I mean, maybe not for a cup team, but right, right they're now they're a credible they're second
2: credible. pair for the second worst team in the league.
1: No, they're a first, they're on the first pair for the worst team in the league, but I'm saying, you know, like, I don't think there's more than 10 teams in the league where Heronic and Merrill couldn't be a second pair for,
2: uh, I'm, I mean, it, at that point, I think you're getting all into roster construction, what the rest of the team looks like. I mean, we know Pittsburgh was able to do it with not a whole lot behind Chris Letang. And, Uh, That's because their forward group was, was filthy, but I don't know. I think this will probably just have to be something we'll agree to disagree. And and in a handful of years, we'll get to look back on this and see what actually happens. But to me, I I view him as he's got to be the Brad Stewart to the Nicholas Cronwell. It can't be the other way around and still be a serviceable second pair.
1: Yeah. No, I don't have a problem with saying he's the number four. It's just, it's like, it's like the idea of like, to me, the idea of being dragged up, it's like, the player is just there and the other guy's doing everything. And I, that's not how I view Phil Peronic. I think he's a, he's a doer, but he's not, he's probably not going to be the, the number three defenseman on a contender. I think he's more likely to be the number four defenseman on a contender, but, but I think he's a like, he's like a positive impact for, he's not just a guy you're sticking in that place. That's kind of the point
2: I'm making. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you as far as that. I, I have a lot of concerns with his time. will
1: certainly tell there's no (laughs) doubt. I think time will tell, but uh, you know, I, I, I believe in, in the, the player. So we're gonna have to rapid fire these forwards here. So, uh, Dylan Larkin, uh, I, I don't know exactly where he ranked in the GSVA.
2: It was too Um, far down for me to count. Let's put it that way. It wasn't that far down, but it was more than a hundred. And I was not going to count past a hundred, except for Philip (laughs) Aaronic, just to make my point. All right.
1: Uh, it was a few spots below Anthony Mantha is the thing that stood out to me. <laughs> so, I think Dylan Larkin's been their best forward this year. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. Um, Dom's model actually likes Mantha Brian uh, knows. Oh, that's fair. I, I guess I'm I'm discounting Bertuzzi because he's been out.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but you know, of the guys who have played, you know, more than half the season. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. it would be Larkin. I was a little surprised that Mantha actually rates as high as he does. I, is it fair of me to assume that that's likely? an underlying kind of possession thing. I believe Manta's expected goals is still in a little bit better place than Larkin's. Is. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's the thing about Manta is no matter what people say about him, the end of the day, when you step back and you look at the numbers, it's somehow the team does better when he's on the ice and they do worse when he's off the ice. Uh, it doesn't matter what he looks like, what happens. That's just seems to be the case. And it's the same, probably the same concept with, with Dom's GSVA is that's the same thing being pulled out there.
1: So, I, you know, I, I really what I what I wanted to bring it up is, is because of the Manta conversation and what you just said is, you know, Manta's a guy who's taken a lot of heat, including from us at times. Um, I think he needs to score more. I don't think he had a shot on goal last night. That's the first time that's happened all season. That stunned me. I, I think he did have a few shot attempts. Uh, at least one of them was blocked late. I don't know if he missed the net on the others or what. Uh, I, I do think they need more out of Manta. I don't think he's been at his best or anything, but it just caught my eye that, to see him still Uh, rating as the Red Wings' best forward so far this year.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like I said, I I certainly expected more from him. I mean, I've certainly championed how good of a player he is and continue to argue with people uh, incessantly on on the social media sites about how good he can be. But the fact of the matter is when you watch him, it just doesn't look the same as it looked last year. And it's hard to really piece together why that is. I mean, maybe – uh, you know, Manta, Bertuzzi, and Larkin really all need each other to really bring the best out of each other to to, to be that top line that they can be. And by themselves, it's a little bit tougher for each of them. Um, you know, recently, you know, Manta has now been able to play back in a line with Larkin. I still don't think that's really, you know, made a huge difference for them. But, you know, it's tough. Uh, however, when you step back and you look at the numbers, still he's still – uh, he's still Anthony Manta. He's still putting up Anthony Manta numbers. Um, I think evolving hockey is a little bit harsher towards Manta um, than Dom's model. I think they have. Yeah. I mean, they're harsh to both Larkin and Manta, and yeah, the sense that Larkin is a negative. Yeah, I mean, they're both negatives in in on evolving hockey. In fact, they're 323rd and 328th amongst forwards um, in standing points above replacement per sixty. So you know neither of those are good, and they have them actually as the 12th and 13th forwards on the team. Um, so that, that's not great, but it's, it's tough. I don't know. I, I, I think the thing I'm most comfortable saying is that nobody has been good.
1: I think that's fair too. I I, I think Larkin's defensive game took a step forward this year, uh, at least just visibly. I, I think you see him in the lane more, which I, maybe it's just cause I'm looking for it. Cause I know it's what he was trying to do. Um, but I do feel like I've seen that show up this year. Um, but you know, there's just no questioning the fact that the offensive numbers, for both of those guys haven't been there. And really the first half of the season, all oh, the first two thirds of the season, I thought the chances really were. And, and so when you look at the shooting percentage, Larkins had the career low shooting percentage. I just kind of assume those are going to start going in at some point, but you know, the, the last week, week and a half, maybe two weeks by now uh, the chances haven't been as, as noticeable either. And I think that, if anything, is the real kind of cause for, you know, what's going on here.
2: Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you look at the forwards right now, nobody is generating anything of substance. So a huge concern, I think, for the Red Wings.
1: All right. And then last thing before we go to the mailbag, we talked about the disconnect between Dom's model and evolving hockey on Larkin and Mantha. Robbie Fabry is a guy who Dom's model isn't mad at. It's, you know, he's he's like, you know, an okay GSVA, uh, but it's not, you know, anything special he's he's you know right behind jason zucker and phil kessel uh but it's it's considerably behind i think it's at like half the impact of larkin and mantha um, and even bertuzzi who has missed a lot of time evolving hockey loves him evolving hockey has him as the red wings best overall player this season
2: yeah and the the real disconnect is what each of the models use as the target variable for offense um you know, and and kind of the wild part with Robbie Fabry is uh, when he's on the ice right now. I mean, the Red Wings are scoring goals. Uh, nothing else looks great, but you know, you look at his expected goals for percentage; it's forty-seven point uh, four. His Corsi for percentage of five and five is forty-four point four. Goals for percentage seventy percent. Something uh, you know. So he that would change. That's that's the thing that's different about him. And again, I think he's getting the same stat boost as John Merrill is with he missed really the rough when all the five guys were out, he's back when everybody's back. So his 13 game sample is with basically a full team minus Tyler Bertuzzi. And when he's been on the ice, the wings are scoring 3.9 goals for per 60 at five on five. That doesn't make any sense. That's not going to continue. So I suspect, um, because evolving hockey basically biases every player towards league average. They don't use priors for a player's ability. Um, it's going to look like he's doing way better than league average. That's going to regress pretty significantly. I think here in the next few weeks.
1: Great point. Yeah. It, it caught my eye because I, i thought Fabry's looked uh, good, uh, better than maybe I was expecting at center, but I still don't think, uh, sorry, he's looked good, comma, better than a little bit better than I was expecting at center, comma, but still not as good a center as I think you're going to need him to be. Um, and I do wonder how long that experiment continues because the, the ways in which he's been good, I think, have been uh, his compete on the puck. And he does add that goal scoring touch that the Red Wings, I think he might be after Mantha uh, the, the most kind of polished goal scorer the Red Wings have. I think Phillips has the upside to be that, but um, still some polishing to be done there. I think he brings a lot of goal scoring. I just wonder if they just move him back to the wing at some point soon here.
2: Yeah, they'll do it as soon as his PDO bender um, kicks. You know, his on-ice shooting percentage is 15.3%. On-ice yeah, save percentage is 945 half. As soon as that kicks, um, which it will kick, no one is going to sustain those kinds of numbers. Uh, I suspect the wings will do some rearranging.
0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: All right, so the Red Wings do have another game against Nashville uh, this week. They play the Predators uh, Thursday night, 7.30. Uh, The line on that one, for those who are curious, via BetMGM, the Red Wings are plus 130, Predators are minus 155 on the money line. Or you can take the spread. Red Wings getting a point and a half. You have to take that at minus 225. Or you take the Predators by one and a half at plus 180. Uh, Over-under set at five and a half. And uh, based on the way game one went, uh, that might be the one to watch there. So uh, that's what's coming for the Red Wings uh, here on Thursday night against Nashville. Let's get into the mailbag. Uh, Prashant, anything uh, jump out to you when they went to the the, the call earlier?
2: Well, uh, lots of people want to talk about Luke Lindenning and his faceoff percentage. Uh, the oh, Ryan Express, you it. know, wants to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, and then we got you know some other people wondering what his trade value would be. So Dylan Trammell asked uh, about the TSN insider report mentioning Luke Lindenning and his faceoff percentage. So so Max, what do you think? Uh, what do I think about his face-off percentage? Yeah. And then his, uh, marketability and whether or not the wing should really move him or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it's very marketable. I mean, I, I think, uh, is a guy whose name you've heard in these conversations for a while now, and there's a reason for it. I mean, I think he is kind of a prototypical, uh, fourth line center on a contender that can really help you win. Jeff Blasio calls him a winning hockey player. And I know that that draws some, uh, you know, reactions when people hear it because the Red Wings haven't really won and Hey, they have Luke Clinton, I think so uh, there's that, but you know, he does a lot of the things that playoff teams covet. It's a lot of the things that, especially some of the younger teams in the league could really use as they, as they try to um, turn the corner in their uh, you know, their franchise state states of the franchise, respectively. Um, we'll talk about the face-off stat in a minute and what it's worth, but just for the record, like, you know, that is something NHL teams, Obviously, are going to value. I mean, it's it's not, you know, Patrice Bergeron is one of the best face off guys in the league, and no one's saying that Luke he becomes Patrice Bergeron because of his face off percentage. Um, but there's a reason that people give a shit about Patrice Bergeron's face off percentage, and it's because when you need to win a face off, you need to be able to count on your guy doing it. Um, so I do think it makes him marketable. So does the fact that he's a generally pretty respected defensive center. If he's playing 10, 11 minutes a night for a really good team, I think it pops even more. People will remember, uh, you know, his series against the Lightning and Tyler Johnson a few years back. That's been a while. but goaltending is not over the hill. You know, he's he's getting there. He's he's getting to around age thirty here, but he's on an expiring deal. I don't know what he brings you, but I think it's it's worth exploring through the Red Wings. I also think he's a guy who's worth bringing back on a short term deal in the off season, but I would be, uh, I I would be certainly exploring the trade market there. I don't think a a second round pick from a contender is an unreasonable ask personally.
2: I mean, you might as well ask for it because contenders seem to be more than willing to give that kind of stuff up. I mean, I I tweeted out a couple of names, uh, um, that, that have been dealt, you know, kind of over the last 20 years. I mean, the two guys, really three guys that come to mind are, uh, Manny Maholtra. Uh, and then you had, uh, Yannick Perot. You had Paul Gostad. And I mean, these were three centers that literally teams just chased. I mean, Yannick Perot was traded three times for draft picks uh, right around the deadline. You know, Manny Malhotra was traded early in his career for, for a draft pick. And Paul Gostad, the guy is literally a bigger version of Luke Lindening, and was traded for a first round pick at the trade deadline and subsequently given a four year contract. The guy had never scored more than 31 points in a season. So, you know, people overvalue the, the face-offs because it's, it's tangible. You see a face-off win in a critical situation. And that led to a result that, uh, you know, was positive for your team. You know, you want a face off late on a, on a power play and your team's able to score. That's great. That's really good. However, as important as situational face-offs can be, Largely on a whole, face offs are not that important.
1: People always ask this is like, are face offs overrated? And my only response is it depends on who's rating them. I think, are they overrated potentially? Like, I I know people have been complaining about hearing it on the broadcasts a lot. And, uh, you know, I obviously only watch the broadcast when they're on the road. So, it didn't feel like I was hearing it, you know, more than once a game, which feels like about the, the amount of time you expect to hear a stat. Because you know, the, the broadcast has to assume that they have new people watching each time. But could they be overrated by kind of the old guard? Probably. But I also think if you're someone who's constantly talking about how overrated they are, you might be underrating them a little bit. So like it's it's certainly for a team like the Red Wings, uh, who has trouble entering the zone with possession. Faceoffs are one of the ways that you can get yourself set up in the zone like that like that's so valuable now luke glendening's line doesn't really matter if 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 they uh get set up in the zone because they very rarely you know really get a a a non-cycle offense going there so i'll grant that i I grant that luke face faceoff percentage probably translates to offense less than most of the other top faceoff guys in the league but i think faceoffs are important you know overrated underrated completely depends on who's saying it and my guess is if you're asking if they're overrated you're probably underrating them and if you're asking if they're underrated you're probably overrating them
2: i will inform top five face-off teams buffalo detroit and vancouver that they should be better well i
1: you know again team face-off percentage i i don't necessarily think is the same thing like i you know it's it's all about the um, i don't know like i want a player who can win me a big face off i just do you know but but i hear what you're saying about the, the the teams who are necessarily at the top of the league there um you know it's it's relevant i i just think like you'd always rather have possession of the puck in whatever zone you're taking the face off in like i i've i've been this is the thing that drove me crazy about when zone starts seem to be everyone the only thing everyone gave a shit about when putting players stats into context is like doesn't matter if you're in the ozone if you lose the face off like you, I don't expect any points out of you because you
2: you don't have the puck yeah I mean I, I get it I think my point and really the point that I like to drive home specific to Luke Lndening is if your only real skill is being able to win face offs, then you are not as valuable to me as a player that doesn't win that wins ten percent fewer face offs but can do a lot more with the puck and that's the problem that I have with chasing the faceoff specialist, which is what drives me nuts. It's chasing the Yannick. Well, Yannick Pro is probably the best of him because he actually could score some. But, you know, Paul Gostad, Manny Mahotra, Luke Lindenning is in this bucket now. Chasing that faceoff specialist and tying up a roster spot for a guy who can really only win you a face-off is not worth it. I mean, you threw out Patrice Bergeron, but that's because Patrice Bergeron is the best two-way player in hockey. Pavel Datsuk was an outstanding face-off man.
1: Yeah, but I threw him out not to compare him to Glendenning. I threw him out well, to contrast well, you know, him to Glenn in,
2: But in that sense, right? If you can't do those other things, then your face-off skill is not worth it because as soon as you win the face-off, you immediately are less valuable than another player on the ice, right? So
1: I know, but no one's saying that he's Patrice no. But what Bergeron? I'm trying to get at is
2: like, if you want the guy that's going to go out and win you the face-off, as soon as the face-off is won. That player is now a detriment relative to another player. And that's the problem that I have is like the faceoff is one aspect. So fine, if you want to put him on the ice, take the faceoff and have him immediately get off the ice, great. But having him take the faceoff and then subsequently be a part of that possession is an overall negative versus the guy who's going to win 49% of his faceoffs as opposed to 60% of his faceoffs but can actually do something with the puck when they get it. That's, that's the issue I have with chasing the face-off specialist.
1: Okay. But the problem, the, like the problem then with the player is not that they're good at face-offs. Like, like it, it, That I don't know. Like, this is like one of the things that like, you know, if you, if you just don't want to hear about face-offs as much, that's one thing I have complete understanding for that. There's all kinds of things that we talk about too much. Same thing with like Dylan Larkin being friends with Zach Wierenski. If it's, if it's just a narrative based thing. I get that. And you're just sick of the narrative. Like that's one thing, but you'd always prefer a player who's one of the best at something than one who's not. Now, I think that the idea of over-prioritizing specialists is a problem in sports. It's a, you know, maybe the, the three point specialist might be the only thing that I really can, uh, understand in, in, in basketball, like the three point specialist, that's the, the position that's like, all right, the way the game is moving if you want to bring in a guy who all he can do is hit a corner three, I actually think you can really justify that. Faceoffs are not on that level. Neither as being a you know power play net front guy. Neither as being a power play quarterback. A hundred percent, I agree. But you'd still rather have a guy who is all of those things than you know. You're, again, you're not comparing Luke Lindenning to Patrice Bergeron. You're not bring. Boston's not going to bring in Luke Lindenning. And be like, oh great, now we don't have to use Patrice Bergeron in these situations. If you're bringing in Luke Lindenning, it's relative to your current fourth line center, who probably isn't very good at anything anyway, except for you know going up and down the ice, which I think Luke Lendenning can do just as well as any of those guys. And he's a great faceoff guy. So that I think therein lies the value of Luke Lindenning. It's that he's, as fourth line centers go as solid as it so, gets. So
2: I, I think overall the issue I then I have kind of bringing it back to simply the faceoff is that when you look at, um, I think people overvalue the the importance of winning the faceoff relative to when a goal is scored, even from end zone time. I think that's the, that's the issue I have is, you know, how important was that one face-off? You know, there's certainly goals where you can point to it. Patrick Nemeth's goal the other night, uh against Florida. I mean, it was a clean face-off draw as the puck moved right over, and that allowed Nemeth to have space. I think in certain instances, when a goal is coming three or four seconds off the face-off, you can very clearly point to the importance of the face-off relative to the goal that happened. But I think we devalue all the other things that happen after the face-off. You devalue the winger support on the face-off, and you devalue the skill set of the players being able to actually do something with the puck after they've won the face-off and inflate kind of the overall value of the actual face-off happening. That's, that's the main issue I take with It is like, it's just, it doesn't very often result in, you know, a very clean play like that Patrick Nemeth thing. And again, as soon as that face-off is done, even if you have possession, that player is now a net negative.
1: To me, that's the same logic as saying, because pulling the goalie doesn't very often result in the goal. You don't want to pull your goalie. Yeah. Most of the time, like, you know, it might not amount to something, but you'd rather have the opportunity for it than
2: not. Well, goals are very different because it pulling your goalie very much increases your expected goals for, right? So does
1: so winning a face-off, I would imagine. It
2: actually doesn't. Mathematically, you know, the measurable effects of a face-off are really limited to the six to seven seconds after a face-off. After that, we don't really see it. And there's been multiple looks at this by multiple analysts. And that's the big reason why I hold this so staunchly is the face-off benefits are really limited to the first five or six seconds. And after that, that's not what you're seeing is not a result of the face-off. And that's why the Patrick Namath goal is a perfect example. That's a face-off goal, but there's very few goals that are scored like that. And, and that's why I just think you devalue all the other things that happen after the face-off when you're talking about plays that happen beyond those five or six seconds.
1: That's fair. I, I mean, it, it is fair. I mean, it, once, if you're in the ozone and you lose the draw, the, the defending team clears it and you're going to go try to enter the zone again. You know, I, I guess you're at that point uh, as long as you can enter the zone, not in that much worse uh, position than you were winning the the draw. But, you know, I I don't know. I I just think in, in situations where the game is on the line uh, I want to win the face off so I can dictate the, the, what's going to happen with the puck, especially in dangerous areas of the ice. I think it's valuable is it more valuable than just overall being a, a player who drives play? Of course not, but that's why we're not talking about like a first-round pick here or, or you know whatever else. I mean, if you don't think Luke Linden is worth a second-round second pick, I think that's fine. Like you know, that's why I think the Red Wings should make that trade is because obviously it's worth more to them to have a second-round pick, and so that's why it's it's a worthwhile trade. But um, you know, I, I'm not arguing for for Luke Lundetting to be considered one of the 90 best centers in the NHL. I just think. You know, for, for a contending team, I don't think he's too much lower than that. And and for a playoff team, he's a, a guy that I would want to, to have a, a, you know, both as a matchup player and yes, specifically for some face-off skill.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I I hear you on that. I think the disconnect for me is uh, you know, you look at a player like Patrice Bergeron, you know, you threw him out as a guy who win face-offs, but he's also incredibly skilled. People are going to tie the goal to his faceoff win, and not all the other things he provides you right after that faceoff win, and that's that's my issue. You certainly want to win. Like I'm not coming out here and saying don't win the faceoff. You right. always want to win the faceoff, but what you do after the faceoff is not a result because of the faceoff. Like Luke Lindenning with possession of the puck on a one faceoff is worse than Patrice Bergeron without the puck losing a faceoff. And that's that's the point I'm getting to. Like, I would rather be in the scenario where I have Patrice Bergeron who lost the faceoff than have Luke Lindenning with possession of the puck after the faceoff.
1: Of course, of course. But again, no one is choosing between Luke Lindenning and Patrice Bergeron. Literally, no one has ever. I, said no, you're I choosing get it.
2: But what I'm them. saying is, what that what I'm doing is you're tying the importance of what happens after to the one faceoff when it's actually the player on the ice, and that's why like. I could give two craps about Luke Lindening and his face-off percentage, but I'll always be here to talk about it with anybody else. But even in the skill guys, I don't really care about it because it's all their other skills. That is what makes them special. All
1: right. I, that's fair. I mean, I, I think we've kind of reached the, the logical end point of that uh, debate here. Uh, but, you know, you make a good point about the first six, seven seconds. I, you know, I, I do get that. I just think uh, there are many things in life that I think, if you're asking if it's overrated, you're probably underrating it. And if you're asking if it's underrated, you're probably overrating it. That's just kind of my, my broad take on, on that kind of situation.
2: That's fair. All
1: right. We might have time for one more here and then we got to let our producer uh, go have the rest of their life. Anything stand out?
2: Uh, I guess a lot of people with Claude Julien being uh, let go by Montreal, you know, the coaching brigade has, has restarted. Max is uh, does Claude Julien change anything for the Red Wings? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Do yeah. no, and you're not going to make a change in season uh, just because he's available. i don't I'm a little happening.
1: surprised that they did though like I will say that I, like I really didn't think any team was going to change coaches unless it got really bad, and Montreal wasn't a team that I would have foreseen as that they could have like a really bad like I almost would like maybe you expected if like Boston gets off to a disaster start. Montreal got off to a good start. They've fallen on a rocky last three weeks.
2: I mean, they're a team with overinflated expectations that was undone by poor special teams and bad goaltending. You put all three of those together. I'm not shocked that they made the move, but I think they're really going to regret it uh, moving forward because uh, Claude Julien was really overachieving with that roster. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, with that, we will wrap up this episode. Uh, We we shortchanged you on the last episode on time length. So, hopefully, we gave it back to you this time. And uh, I do apologize for the barking for about 10 straight minutes there. I have no idea what was happening outside the window, but it must have been pretty interesting. So, uh, everybody take care, and uh, we'll be back at you uh, early next week. And uh, if you are listening to this, uh, we would love if you would give some feedback. So, if if you want to go into the show notes, wherever you're listening to the show, uh, there should be a link and you can give us your feedback. Tell us what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you uh, and please be as as honest as possible. We want to make this uh, show as fun to listen to as possible and uh, your feedback helps us do that. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon.